Welcome back to Dumbest in the Room. Today's guest um, is not only way smarter than me, he has a way nicer beard and nicer <laughs> hair. Um, joining me today is Andrew Dotson. He's a uh, theoretical nuclear physicist. Andrew, thanks for being here. Yeah, it's awesome to finally be here. Big fan. So, like I was telling you when you got here, man, I don't know anything about what you're going to talk about. So, let's start at the very beginning, and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty. So, I was watching some of your videos this morning, and you started out as a biology major. That's right. So, you, so how did you go from biology to uh, physics? So, that was... Uh... I mean, I'm sure it hurts my old biology professor's feelings, but I remember when I was going to VCU for studying biology, the reason was because I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor. And at VCU, it turned out that, uh, you know, they had a, a medical campus kind of associated with the undergraduate program. So you were hedging your bets the right way by going to VCU because you were kind of increasing the odds that if you did well, you could get into a good medical school right away. And then I took a couple biology courses, and at least in my experience, it was a lot of like, so this is what this is called, this is what this is called, this is what this is called, this is this cycle, and here's everything that everything's called in this cycle. It was a bunch of memorization, and I don't have a very good memory. <laughs> uh, and I remember coming home on break one summer, one fall, whatever it was, and having this conversation with my dad. and. Uh, he kind of stopped me and said that when I come home on break, I'm never talking about how cool the respiratory system is or, or the brain or cell, whatever. I would always come home and start talking about what I saw on Into the Universe with Stephen Hawking or Cosmos with Carl Sagan. Like it was, it was always these topical but really uh, interesting topics in physics that I would enjoy talking about, not what I was learning in biology. So then my dad kind of planted the seed that maybe physics would be more for me and, uh, you know, put some thought into it, realized I could go not be a medical doctor anywhere. So then I transferred back to Old Dominion University and, and I guess that's kind of history from there. So, okay, let's jump back even further before going to uh, VCU. I mean, what did you always want to be in some kind of scientific field? I'm sorry. Um, no, not entirely. I think, <laughs> I mean, we knew each other from high school. Mm -hmm. And so I remember going over to your house with, with the boys and we'd skate the, the mini ramp and all that stuff. And at that time, so I guess there were phases where at that time I was convinced that I would be a professional skateboarder. <laughs> and I remember saying that to like my guidance counselor or whatever they're called <laughs> and them laughing <laughs> I'm like, okay, uh, but just in case for some reason that doesn't work <laughs> out, what else would you want to do? And my mind, I guess, immediately went with doctor. And uh, I think I told myself that I wanted to do it for long enough to where I just believed it. And I was like, I'll just, I'll just be a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so initially it was it was professional skateboarder. You could go <laughs> further back, I'm sure, and I wanted to be a pirate or something. I mean, I guess we'll start in high school, and then uh, and then yeah. So then then when I first got an inkling that I didn't have to be the class clown, just making people laugh, I, I actually could do well if I applied myself. Yeah. Then I started looking into the STEM the STEM stuff. So it definitely did start in high school. And actually, my physics teacher in high school, Mr. Allard was definitely the the catalyst for my interest in physics because when we were learning about how strings and, and stuff oscillated, he knew that I played guitar and, and sang and stuff, so he invited me to play I remember for the that class about him. him. Yeah, I remember that about him, like in guitar. Yeah. <laughs> as, an, as an example. Wow. So, okay. I mean, yeah, professional skateboarder, that, you know, <laughs> hey, it's, it's possible, but yeah, I mean, not likely for everybody. So, so you got into the STEM and talk about kind of where you said VCU had a good um, med school. So did you apply, apply anywhere else or just? Uh, in undergrad, I, I really don't remember too much for me. It was, it was, if I didn't get in there, yeah, I don't, I don't really even know if I had a backup plan at that time. I was just like, this will probably work out. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure I applied to like ODU and, and local, yeah. uh, like state school, like Virginia state school universities. Um, but yeah, no other university really stuck out at the time. It just it just made sense to apply there. Gotcha. Okay, so at what point did you say you 
you, how far into VCU were you when you transferred to ODU? I was finishing up my second year. So okay. it's kind of, it's kind of funny because when you're, when you're pre-med, uh, so first of all, at VCU, at least when I was there, half the school is pre-med, like half the school wants to be a medical doctor and the other half is artists. And then there's like business and engineering people sprinkled in there as well. Mm-hmm. But those are big programs there. Uh, so I got to, if you want to become a medical doctor, you'd normally do biology because a lot of what's on their test, their their MCAT, will be taught throughout a biology degree and, and the chemistry minor. So in preparation for that, you have to take organic chemistry, which is a pretty difficult chemistry course. So I had to take it there, but then when I switched to physics, now that's just listed as an elective. <laughs> so it's like, I, I, I just wanted to try it just for that. Like you can just lie and yeah, I totally just wanted to see what organic chemistry was all about. <laughs> How were you doing in these uh, medical classes? Uh, I didn't take any medical classes necessarily. Or biology. So bio, the intro stuff was pretty easy. I, uh, I was something of the equivalent of a TA, but as an undergraduate student in biology, they called it a preceptor. And uh, so I, I didn't leave it because I wasn't good at it. I, I really, it was getting hard to want to have to memorize all of that stuff. Hmm. Uh, chemistry came a lot more naturally though. Because it's a little bit closer to physics. Yeah, uh, that was going to be my next question. Like, are there any parallels between biology and physics? Probably not, right? I mean, uh, I mean, you can list the hierarchy of, I guess, the most pure sciences that are out there, and I, I, I'm biased, but I think at the the most pure of the sciences is chemist or sorry, is physics, and then uh, physics is actually what turned chemistry into a real science. So back when we had the the periodic table was first, you know, implemented. We knew how the elements were arranged, but we didn't know why certain ones enjoyed being next to other ones and why other ones had this preference against them. And it wasn't until like the early 1900s when quantum mechanics was introduced that we could finally explain chemistry, which is why I said physics turned it into a, a real science because now it finally had predictive power. So if you work your way up the hierarchy, you got physics, then you've got chemistry, and then chemistry explains biology, but we're not quite at physics explaining all of the biology just yet. And then you can go further up into like the psychology or uh, stuff that's a little bit farther removed. You're kind of, I like where you're going a little bit. So you're talking about the hierarchy, like the the pure, what do you mean by pure? Like, um, yeah, I don't even know what I'm trying to ask. What do you mean by pure? Um, if I had to put like a hand wavy expression to it, like how often does someone have to say it's not an exact science? And I think as you go up that hierarchy, that phrase comes up a lot more, especially if you're like trying to predict human behavior. There's not an equation necessarily from first principles that says this is definitely what's going to happen. So physics is like you said, the most pure because it is what it is. Yeah. Interesting. And Talk about if you, I'm sure you can, um, but if not, well, I'll edit this out, but talk about, um, you know, when, when were these things first being discovered? Laws of physics. The laws of physics. Well, I would wager that it's, it's Newton's time. So 16, 1600s. Newton was, is usually accepted as the first physicist. Um, and actually what's, what's interesting is so he had to invent his very own branch of math to, to tackle the problems that he was interested in. He was interested in, you know, everyone's heard the story of the apple falling from the tree, and he th- I'm thinking about gravity. So um, maybe backtracking a second, there's this common misconception out there that if a theory gains enough supporting evidence, that eventually it gets turned into a law. And that's just not how it works. You think, like, if a theory gets if enough people design experiments that agree with the theory, it's promoted to a law at some point, but that's, that's not what happens. So laws describe observations. So in the Newton example, apples fall from trees, the theory explains the observation or it's an attempt to explain the observation. And a good theory not only explains the observation, but makes additional predictions that we haven't seen yet. So if we only had theories that were ad hoc, they just explained the thing that we already saw, 
that if you have a different theory that only says the same, explains the same thing, it's hard to tell which one is better than the other. So they have, they normally have to make additional predictions to be uh, valuable. So Newton came up with his theory of gravity, and for about 400 years, 300 years, uh, it went unchallenged. It just, it every experiment you threw at it, it worked. So what is, his theory is just that things fall to the ground? That's the law. That's the law okay. saying basically things fall to the ground. The theory, why, is that there's this mysterious force of gravity. I see. And it depends on the mass of the two objects, and it depends on how far away there are, and then there's an additional proportionality constant because units matter. And uh, it turns out that in his framework, uh, the farther, if you double the distance between two objects, the force between them is reduced by four times. It's an inverse square law. Maybe that isn't very meaningful, but... um. For all practical purposes, for hundreds of years, it worked. Every experiment within the accuracy of the experiment agreed with Newton's laws. Now, if, or sorry, with his, his theory of gravity. Now, if at some point we were like, okay, it's past 100 experiments, now it's Newton, or now it's a law, mm-hmm. well, we would have been, uh, I don't know what we would have done if, if that's how we phrased things, because then comes Einstein and in, in, 1905 and later 1915 where he from the ground up reworks gravity and it makes additional predictions that newton's equations couldn't predict and if it wasn't for that you know we'd have no way of explaining that mercury has this weird orbit that deviates from what uh from what newton says it should be or that um gps satellites that go around the earth they have to constantly account for the fact that as you get farther from the Earth, clocks tick differently. Hmm. And that's an effect of gravity. It's called gravitational time dilation. So Newton was the first real physicist, but his theories were eventually amended and, and uh, made to be more general, to describe more things, to be more accurate. So um, I'm not quite sure... So that would be within the realm of classical physics, I guess is the best way to put it. You have classical Newtonian physics. You can describe anything gravitational. You can describe uh, if you have a ball rolling down a ramp, when is it going to reach the bottom? All that stuff is classical. Then towards the 1900s, early 1900s, you get people like Max Planck. You get people like Paul Dirac, like Albert Einstein. And this marks kind of a, a new revolutionary point in physics where additional concepts, integral concepts in modern physics like relativity and quantum mechanics or quantum physics become indispensable. So that's like the new, uh, if you were to partition up history, that's like the next big point of, of physics is, is the advent of relativity and quantum physics. And it's around that time that chemistry is made into a science that gives us uh, a tool to predict um, properties of matter so if you want to build like modern electronics without quantum mechanics, we would have had no way to understand that silicon objects like elements like silicon have interesting properties where they can behave both like conductors or semiconductors or, uh, or insulators, depending on, um, well, depending on some technical things. But uh, so in the advent of relativity and quantum mechanics, you also birth uh, modern electronics, which I guess would be another that's where I guess you get like engineering physics kind mm-hmm. of budding out of everything. So the history is pretty rich. It's pretty interesting stuff. Were the were Newton and um, and Einstein? I mean, were they just were there's things happening in their lives or the time that made them want to try these things? Or are they like, is it just because they're super geniuses? Like, well, wh- during during uh, when Newton was alive, he was alive during the plague. So Cambridge was actually kind of shut down. So he was just left to his own devices where he had all the time in the world to think. To figure stuff out. Einstein, um, it depends. so he worked first at like a patent office where he would go over inventions and stuff that were being submitted. So people often say that's where he really started to refine his physics 
was when he had to check the work in like patent offices and things like that. Really important stuff came after his big discovery. Um, once he once he invented slash discovered relativity, you know, he gave us E equals MC squared. Uh, people started to ask, what can you do with that? And then once the neutron was discovered, people learned that you could split the atom and turn effectively that mass into pure energy. So then... Um, people would speak to Einstein at this at this point he was kind of a household name already and people would talk to him saying if we figured this out that you can convert this matter into energy it's only a matter of time before the Germans do as well so Liard Silla I believe is what his name was he spoke with Einstein and convinced him to write this letter to Roosevelt saying that nuclear physics needs to start being uh, investigated a lot further mm. which it's hard to know. Einstein was a huge pacifist, so it's hard to say if he regretted writing that letter, yeah. knowing what, what came from that, or if he still kind of slept well at night. I'm not sure. Yeah, wow. That's very interesting. Talk more about the... Um, you mentioned Newton had to invent his own math, and, and Einstein equals MC squared. How do you... How in the world do you invent your own math? Obviously, like you said, it's pure. Like, it is what it is. But how do you, like, realize these things? Mm. What was the inspiration? Because, um, I mean, in a way, is that kind of what you're doing now? Like, maybe you're finding new things that have not been found, right? I'm not inventing math to do what I do. I, I use math that has already been used in a way that it hasn't been used before. Gotcha. Uh, so, that's kind of... Um, so Newton invented, he was one of the people who kind of invented calculus, the other person being a, a person named Leibniz. And they, they both invented this independently from each other at about the same time. The reason for it was, if, let me, let me think about the best way to explain this. If, we're, if you're driving down the road and you're driving at like a constant speed the entire time and you say, I was driving at 45 miles per hour for one hour, you know, without doing any calculus, I can tell you exactly how far you went. Mm -hmm. You went 45 miles an hour for one hour, then you went, um, you went 45 miles. But then you say, well, what if that speed wasn't constant the entire time? What if I was slowing up and speeding up at various times? Then it wasn't always just 45 miles per hour. How do you solve that problem? And in order to do that, you need, uh, you need calculus. You need, um, so the, the question is, how do we deal, instead of just a constant rate of change, so the speed is just the rate of change of position, how is, how is position changing, mm -hmm. how do we incorporate that if that's not a constant anymore? This, this wasn't necessarily how he approached that, but this is one way of explaining where calculus becomes really useful for physics, is when... Uh, you can't just do algebra to solve those kinds of problems anymore. I don't really know a better way of explaining it. Um, I'd have to put some more thought into it, but it, it has to do with instantaneous rates of change as opposed to assuming you can use the same one throughout. You can't just use 45 miles per hour throughout. Mm -hmm. You have to talk about the velocity at this point or at this point and how to, how to phrase that mathematically requires calculus. Uh, Einstein did something a little bit differently. He used a branch of math that was around. He didn't invent the math that you need for his theory of gravity, which is called general relativity. But he was one of the first people to use it in physics, to see how it could be applicable to physics. So in that sense, they're a little bit different there. Hmm. Interesting. When did, um, and I, like I said, I don't know anything about any of this, but I do know that gra the speed of gravity is 9.8 meters per second squared, right? Acceleration due to gravity, yeah. So how did somebody figure that out? Well, you can use the, the tools of calculus to say, you know, if... Um, At what point was this, too? Because, like, you know, now we have a stopwatch and we can do replays or whatever, but, like, if Newton's doing it, he doesn't have... He's just, like, watching stuff, right? Like, with his own eyes. Well, you're 9.8 meters per second squared. That's still an approximation to what gravity is. There's more decimals to it. Okay. And at the time of Newton, I suspect, you know, that approximation was just a little bit cruder. Maybe instead of 9.8, because he didn't have a stopwatch, he just had to, like, 
one Mississippi, two Mississippi, maybe you yeah. said that it was 10 meters per second squared. Obviously, you weren't there, so I'm not going to hold you to the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to but, what he did. <laughs> but what you could do, we know how things like, if, if you drop a ball off of a roof, and I know how tall the building is, and I know how long it was in, in the air for, then I can, <clears throat> excuse me, I can extract from that information what the acceleration due to gravity must be. Um, or you can go, let's see, the other way that you could do it is you could look at the, well, yeah, you would have to look at the force of gravity on an object due to Earth. And again, you would just have to design these experiments where something is either swinging from a pendulum and you're keeping track of the period, or you could drop something off of a roof, but you need something like position. How is its position changing? And how long is it happening for? And from that, you can get the acceleration due to gravity from that. See, it just blows my mind. Like how, first of all, how somebody even thinks to do this. And then second, how, you know, how, without these equations at first, I mean, how do you, I don't know. I don't know how you create math. That seems insane, but obviously they did it. So (laughs) it's, uh, it's easier, it's easier to show than it is to talk at someone, Yeah, you know, like it's, it's, it's easier than it sounds, you know, I mean, Newton had all the time in the world. I've been studying this for uh, close to 10, let's see. Yeah, I mean, I'm in my fourth year of my PhD. It took me about four years for the physics part of my bachelor's, so close to 10 years. So it's daunting if you look at the end and you say, how do you get there? Right. But if you take it incrementally, it's a lot more digestible, and you realize, damn, anyone really could do this. Interesting. So, okay, so let's talk about what do you do like on a day to day in your studies. Cause I, I watched another one of your videos where, and maybe I, I might not have understood it properly, but you at your internship were solving like real problems. Like it wasn't like they just gave you something to do as an intern. Like you were doing real physics that might've might help the future. Right. Yeah. So the first internship was at Jefferson lab. And it was through, so they have a couple divisions at Jefferson Lab. They have the accelerator division, the stuff that's mostly concerned with getting the particle accelerator to run as best as possible. What does that mean? Well, you know, you have this elaborate piece of equipment, this particle accelerator, and you have beams of particles that are traveling through it. If you um, one let's let's look at one property that would be important. Maybe say like the the beam width. If I have this target that I'm wanting to bombard with this beam of electrons, you know, if the beam of electrons is too diffuse, then a lot of that is going to waste. It's not actually hitting the target. So how do you maximize? Uh, I guess the density of the beam. Like what do the properties of the magnets that focus the beam have to be? These are the questions that say the accelerator physicist would have to answer. So my first internship was in this accelerator division, and they were pitching a new possible accelerator that might have gone to Jefferson Lab. And the best in this design that they had, as they're throwing these electrons around, they get hotter and hotter, and as a result, it gets more diffuse and more diffuse. So the question was, how do we cool these electrons off? So my project was trying to answer that problem or answer that question in the most cost-effective way possible as well. Because we knew how to do it perfectly, but, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good enough. It was like, do we need perfect or how much can we get away with with less than perfect? Uh, That's the best I can explain it without really going into the weeds. And then the the second internship was in the nuclear physics department or the nuclear physics um, division. So there I was actually getting a taste of theoretical nuclear physics, which is what I do now. And uh, at the time, I had no... The way that I could explain it was I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew how to do it. Like, Hmm. if you follow the instructions in a manual, you may not really understand why all of these things fit together the way that they do, but you can follow the instructions. And that's more or less what I had to do at the time because I wasn't... I didn't know the physics necessary to, to understand it yet. Talk about like the practical application of what you're doing for 
a dummy like me or, you know, somebody, maybe the government or somebody who's benefiting from your research. No, that's a, that's a really good point that you bring up, the government. So the, the key thing is that this stuff is never privatized, meaning if a nuclear physicist is asking for funding, they're not asking for some, from some private own business. They're, it's going from either the Department of Energy or the Department of Defense, you know, these government entities. Um, so the thing with fundamental research is that you really don't know what you're looking at yet. If you start asking necessarily, what is it going to be used for? I think that knowing what something is going to be used for or thinking about how to apply something already requires such a deep understanding of the thing that you're working with. But in this theoretical nuclear physics, we don't have that understanding. So as it stands right now, I can't really tell you what what I research will be immediately useful for. If I did, I wouldn't be researching it. I'd be researching something else that we don't have that understanding for. Gotcha. However... That wouldn't fly for if you start uh, lobbying and saying, well, we need one point whatever billion dollars to build an accelerator to smash these particles together. And then if Congress people say, well, what are you going to find? What is this going to be used for? You better have a better answer than I don't know. Um, so that's actually the job of the theorist is to kind of speculate on that stuff a little bit more. Uh, and thankfully, you can also point at the track record. Nuclear physics is in a good spot where it's almost always eventually useful for something. Mm -hmm. You can think the, the prime examples would be medical technology, things like MRIs, PET scans. These things are all consequences of trying to better understand particle accelerators and particle physics, of which nuclear physics is a subfield of. So uh, I guess the closest immediate applications for what I do would probably fall into the medical technology aspect because I'm interested in effectively imaging the proton. What is it? Does it make sense to ask, what does it look like? Do we have a way of answering that question, not only mathematically, but, you know, experimentally? And if you think about how small the proton really is, that much resolution, once we succeed in answering that question, having that much resolution in an image, whatever the image means, will do wonders for imaging other things that you'd be interested in, in in the medical field. For example, if you want to isolate exactly where a tumor is, do you know where the tumor begins and ends precisely? Not only is that an important question, but if you start blasting it with radiation, are you sure that it's going to where it needs to go and not elsewhere? So not to cut you off, but I had testicular cancer and they had to remove my left testicle and do pathology to know that it was cancer. So what you're saying is, Maybe one day, five, ten, hundred years from now, you could create something that would know Im through imaging if it was or was not without having to remove. I mean, that's just what I'm kind of. That's the track record. That's that's what history is pointing towards is where's gotcha. the most immediate. It wouldn't be me finding out how to apply it. Once I solve this problem on paper, I will move on to a different problem. I won't keep going. Excuse yeah. me. I won't keep going and say, all right, now let's, let's build, let's build this. That, yeah. That's not me. Somebody else's job. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, yeah. It, I mean, you can speculate further. You can, that's, that's what I would be getting into anyway. It's just kind of wild speculation of like farther down the road. What could it possibly also be useful for? I mean, at this stage, our modern electronics consists of, manipulating electrons through certain material and that material exists at the scale of like a, a, a roughly a billionth of a meter a nanometer we can have that kind of technology and then you say well how big is the proton the proton's not a fundamental particle it's made of other charged particles so you could speculate that once we get once we truly understand the forces that keep the proton together and and all understand all of its properties then maybe instead of manipulating electrons through, you know, silicon or something like that, you'd be manipulating actually the quarks inside of the proton. So in other words, the chips that are inside of your phone would only get smaller and smaller and more powerful and more powerful. So it's, it's fun to think that way. It's like, uh, 
I, I wonder what people will find to bitch about after we get to that <laughs> point in technology. <laughs> Can you, um, if possible, um, kind of dissect where you said what you're doing theoretically down the line will create something like the MRI or the CT um, with what you do, where, like what, I don't even know how to ask this cause it, I'm not smart, but <laughs> so looking at the, the MRI as the end result, where was your, where would your role have been in the early stages? Ah, okay. That's a, okay. So at the beginning, maybe, maybe there are, I'm not sure if the difference is historical or if there are very subtle differences, but my understanding is back in the day, it used to be called an NMR, which stands for nuclear magnetic resonance. People didn't like the word nuclear. It makes people afraid. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, I think they changed it to MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. But it all started, I don't remember which physicist uh, it was, I probably should, but it all started with a person investigating because they just didn't understand that when you slap a certain particle with a magnetic field, it spins in a certain way. And that little procession that it has ends up being an integral part uh, to how MRIs end up working. That was not the end goal when the person was investigating it. The, per the reason they were interested in it was because they didn't know why it was doing that or that it did it in the first place. So if you were to go along the timeline... It would be right there, right in its infancy, mm -hmm. where I, I'd be. It, it kind of brings me back to a story. Um, I guess it would be. I don't even want to guess and embarrass myself. What year it was, but back when electricity was starting to be, uh, not run through everyone's home, but people were learning how to manipulate it. People like Faraday. He would put on these shows, these electrical shows, where you'd see sparks flying or, you know, cover something in uh, a metal wire, and then the thing on the inside would be completely protected from the electricity, like these cool little demos. And people would go to his show and say, Faraday, these are cool demos, but what the hell are you ever going to, what could this, <laughs> what practical purpose could this electricity stuff ever be useful for? And he, the... Story goes, he responded by saying, I haven't the slightest idea, but I promise one day you'll be able to tax it. And that's <laughs> that's the story of physics, I think. I, I have no idea, but one day you can tax it. Interesting, man. I wish I was smart like you. because Do anything for eight years and tell me you don't get good at it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. What are, um? you said medical um, is kind of what you suspect the end goal will be. What are like some other practical examples that you can think of maybe not medical and you said technology you mean like a cell phone is well, like parts I, in I, a parts on a cell phone are results of people theorizing different ways to right so if i mean if it does go the the route where what modern electronics transitions into is uh well right now we have a new kind of version of the periodic table like you used to have just the periodic table of elements. You know, we had we had a we had a head count. We had a roster. Excuse me. And then quantum mechanics comes around and does the explanations. Now we're at a new periodic table called the standard model of particle physics. So the old one, you know, mo modern electronics consists of being able to manipulate that periodic table of elements and how that interfaces with electrons. How to do that so that we can get um, useful electronics out of it. Our new periodic table of elements, the standard model, goes one step further. Like those elements that we have, take take hydrogen. Hydrogen made up of, you know, proton, neutron, electron. Then you look at the proton that makes it up and you say, is this fundamental? And the answer is no. These particles are made up of even smaller particles. And that's what this new periodic table, the standard model, it's not so new anymore. But, uh, that's the way that I think about it, is we have, instead of all of these elements on the periodic table, and we learned which ones are useful for electronics, now we have all of these truly elementary particles, like quarks, gluons, they're heavier cousins, you have electrons, neutrinos, which you may have heard of, 
<coughs> I, I see the future <laughs> of modern electronics being manipulating those, understanding the stuff to where we can manipulate those at such a smaller scale to where not only the trips that are in our phone would scale down by like a, an unimaginable factor in size. So not only could would they be smaller, they'd be more powerful and you could fit more of them in there. So I think computing power would inevitably skyrocket. Uh, buffering would be a, a thing of the past. Everyone, I don't know, everyone is talking about what's after like 4K or 5K TVs. I can't imagine what resolution would transform into. Yeah, It, it would, uh, it would give... I feel like it would give people headaches how clear images would become. People actually do. Um, if you look at the really high-resolution TVs, I don't remember where I heard this, but when you look at something that's dynamic in the real world, there's motion blur, mm-hmm. right? You can see blurs, and it tells you it's evolutionary. It tells you things are moving, things are in progress. If you look at these really high-resolution TVs, uh, even though things are moving, everything will be crystal clear, which messes with our head that tells you these things should be blurry and it gives people headaches. Yeah. So that, that's kind of funny to think about. In uh, like the film world, I know like directors of photography, um, I've seen on Facebook and groups that I'm in and stuff, people will go over to their friends' houses and turn on the motion blur so that it's seen the way it's supposed to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, man. So I'm yeah. sorry I can't give you a more, more solid this is what it could probably be used for. This is just spe- like wild speculation. Yeah, no, at this no point, it's fine. But. It's totally fine. So, I mean, people who are interested in what you're doing long-term, like Apple might be interested in making their chip smaller and faster and they're competing with Samsung and all them. Are they hiring people like you or, or they're hiring people who have found use from what you're doing like 30 years later? Mm-hmm. There's a difference between like R and D that goes into like modern engineering, and so the research that goes into modern engineering is really different from research that say I'm doing. Their research is using stuff that they already know about how this stuff works. They're not discovering new uh, explanations for laws of physics. They're applying them. They're they're you know this research and development might as well be called like trial and error. Mm-hmm. Like seeing what works and what doesn't, given what they already know. So, with, with what I'm doing, I wouldn't be very useful to, to to those people because I'm so far removed, kind of from a direct application, to where um, you know, maybe maybe the experimental physicists or the engineers who all work together would be more useful than than I would be. One of the things that you mentioned earlier was um, what you do kind of helps predict new laws right did i get that right or no yeah in a sense yeah yes so that leads me to ask and you might not know this because of what you know you, you don't know until you know but are there potentially new things that we don't know about new laws that we don't know that's a fun question absolutely um so this this new this periodic table this the standard model of particle physics you can write down a single equation that describes all of it and we already see glimpses of this equation being wrong. Uh, so at some point, like there is new physics out there to be discovered. There are new laws at work. There are new mechanisms that uh, tell the particles how to behave that we just don't know uh, how to write down yet. We don't know how to write down what nature is trying to tell us. Um, so you'll see this new this this will typically be called beyond standard model physics or BSM, and uh, yeah. So one one thing that the standard model predicts, as an example, is that neutrinos, which are like, if you think of electrons, but lighter and uh, they don't have charge, so they're really hard to detect. Because what makes electrons easy to detect is that they have electric fields, uh, but neutrinos are are chargeless, so it's it's they only interact via other mechanisms. So they're very hard to, to work with. But the standard model predicts that they're massless. And we found out through this process called neutrino oscillations that that's not the case. They do have a mass. And no one's really figured out how to change the standard model to work that in in a way that everyone agrees on. That's one example of it being wrong. The other thing, the glaring example, is dark matter and dark energy. 
if if dark matter really is a form of matter, it should be somewhere somewhere in the standard model of particle physics, but we don't know how to work that in. No one's figured that out either. This might be a really dumb question, but what is dark matter? I know I've heard of it. I know, um, <laughs> what is it in Breaking Bad? They talk about gray matter. Is that kind of the same? Gray matter is in, in like brain, isn't it? Uh, maybe. Um, but yeah, what's dark matter? Well, I, I'll start by saying I definitely can't answer. Okay. But I can tell you why we think it's there. Okay. Sort of. My, my girlfriend, Kelly, she's an astronomer, and she would be able to explain this a lot better than I could. But um, if, you look at, if you look at galaxies, galaxies are all being held together by their gravity. Okay? But they're also spinning. And if you were to take, say, like an elastic band attached to a ball and start spinning the ball around and around, eventually, if you spin it fast enough, the band is going to snap and the ball is going to go flying, mm-hmm. right? You can calculate given... So in this case, the analogy is gravity for the galaxy is, is, is the analogy for the elastic band holding the ball in even though it's spinning. So it turns out you can calculate given how fast the galaxies are rotating, how much mass would need to be there to generate enough gravity to keep the galaxy together, to keep the band from snapping. And you're off by a long shot. So at face value, there is not enough mass in the galaxies to keep them together. So this missing mass, the mass that must be there, we just can't see it, was given a name, and we call it dark matter. Hmm. It only, as far as we know, it only interacts gravitationally. That's the reason the galaxies are together. It doesn't seem to interact electromagnetically. It doesn't seem to interact via the nuclear forces. So our only hope at understanding it as it stands right now is to better understand gravity at, say, a quantum level, which we also don't know how to do. (laughs) So we're kind of uh, SOL on two fronts there. Dark energy is a different story, though. How do um, the different sciences work together? I mean, you said she's doing astronomy. Mm -hmm. Do these kind of things go hand in hand? physics, uh, nuclear physics and astronomy and it can't, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, so she's interested in the very big stuff. I'm interested in small stuff. It's actually, I, I was thinking about this earlier. Her stuff is actually bigger than my stuff is small. Um, meaning if you talk about like the size of the proton, it's a really small number. So if you take one over that, it's a really big number, and that number is still nothing compared to the distances that people work with in astronomy. That's why they call it big numbers astronomically large and not nuclear large, because it just puts it to shame. But yeah, um, if I say say astronomy, then there are many, many facets to it. There are different branches of astronomy, just as there are not all of physics is nuclear physics. You Mm -hmm. know, there's condensed matter, solid state, a whole bunch of stuff. So there are branches of astronomy, as an example, that interface more with, say, what I do. Mm-hmm. Astronomy is, is really physical as well. It's, it's basically a branch of physics. Um, there were historical differences, like some people may be more observational, who, whose job mostly consists of you know, working with observatories or interferometers or, or whatever it is to just gather the data and maybe aren't doing the math necessarily. But for the most part, nowadays, they do a little bit of everything. So making the distinction is, I don't know if it's completely necessary. But so there are parts of astronomy and astrophysics that are very sim- close, closely related to what I do. Uh, an example would be cosmology, which has to do with how the universe evolves. So if it's, as we know right now, the universe is getting bigger and it's getting bigger faster and faster. But if it's bigger now, then it must have been smaller before. And if you hit rewind on the equations that describe how the universe is expanding, eventually it gets to a really, really small point where it starts to be more quantum mechanical, which is where my tools of physics come in. Mm-hmm. So depending on where you're interested at in, in cosmology, Particle physics tends to be a very important uh, and prevalent feature in it. So, I'm going to ask you a personal question now. You don't have to answer it, and I won't include it if you don't want me to. Okay. Um, how does religion play into this? I know, like, 
you know, if, if we're talking evolution, blah, 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 whatever. But as far as physics, like in, you know, the galaxies, you said, is that something that, you know, you can be religious and scientific? Are they two different things? Um, I think what I have to say about that is you can, cont- for it to, so the difference between, like, if you were to have a scientist who is religious and a scientist who is not, I think the difference is when they stop asking why. Like, I can continuously keep asking why or what happened before so long as that question makes sense. Someone who's religious may be more tempted to, at a certain point, they're faced with the darkness of not knowing the explanation and may be tempted to say God did it. Mm -hmm. So, and then once physics has an explanation, then the religious person may say, well, then God did the thing before that. So it's just... I think that might be might be the difference. So yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not a religious person, um, but as long as someone doesn't give up on trying to explain something because they were content with the answer that God did it, I can work with them. Interesting. Right? Interesting. I like that answer. The periodic table that you mentioned is that something that um, will be taught in public schools, or is that something that only is relevant to somebody who's working in the field. Well, you can look at a table. You can take the table of uh so it's it's not that's the name that I think I saw once at a at a conference or something where they were like this is like a new periodic table, but it's never called that. It's always called the standard model and you can look up like a uh a table that just says this is the roster of particle physics. These are all of the particles that we know about. And there's no reason you can't show that to people in in high school. Um, it would be very difficult to explain the whys of these particles and why not other particles that the, 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 the tools haven't been developed in high school to, to try to give those explanations. But yeah, you can, you can say, yeah, there's the protons, not fundamental. We know it's made of quarks and gluons. We know that there are different, uh, flavors of quarks and, you know, at a certain point, that's just. If you can't explain it, then it's kind of stamp collecting, you know, just putting like these are what these are called again. Mm-hmm. So introducing it early, it's fine to, so that people are familiar that there's more out there. But knowing the name of something is not the same as under the, as understanding it, you know. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So back to like what you do on a day to day. Are you looking you're doing math? Or are you looking under a microscope? What exactly is happening? I everything. The reason. So I'm here for about a month. And I'm still working while I'm here. I live in New Mexico. And uh, the reason I can do that is because everything that I do can be done on a pen and paper. Sometimes I have to write a code to solve the problem because I don't know how to solve it on a pen and paper, but my my computer can figure it out. Um, But yeah, the majority of what I do is pen and paper math. Wow. Can you give an example of of what math is like i've seen some of your videos and the equations look like a different language um so it's it's really similar to the branch of math that einstein used for his theory of general relativity it's called tensor calculus and uh it's, Which is it's your, that's your merch right yeah tensors i love tensors <laughs> they, there's a steep learning curve to getting familiar with them but they're not incredibly difficult to understand their importance uh the idea of it is you know this was a kind of an analogy that was given by one of my professors if i if we put a birdhouse at the corner of this room you know and you and i both come up with different coordinate systems to describe where that birdhouse is you know i may give mine in terms of how far it is from this microphone uh, in this direction, how high up from the floor, and so on. And, and then if I give someone else my directions given from my coordinate system, they will find the birdhouse. And you may give a completely different coordinate system relative to some other reference points, like your microphone or, what, or whatnot, and give them your directions relative to your coordinate system, and they'll find the same birdhouse. Hmm. Then you open a window, the bird 
who doesn't know anything about coordinate systems just flies right to it. You know, so the, the, what I'm getting at is we can describe a physical thing relative to my coordinate system or yours, but the fact that they both get us to the same answer means there must be a way of relating how I'm explaining things to how you're explaining things. So with this theory, this is the concept of tensors. So with this theory of tensors, you get for free a theory of relativity because it's all about what I got relative to what you got. And if I follow the rules of how our descriptions are related, I should be able to convert what I got into what you got. Um, so what I do uses this, this branch of math and relativity uh, and also the tools, which is harder to explain, of math that is used in, uh, in quantum mechanics as well. So, but yeah, relativity is probably the most important, or tensors is, is like the most important branch of math for what I do. Because we need to be able to compare answers. Interesting. Tensor makes me think of uh, the skateboard truck company. Do you think that when they made that, they were thinking of Einstein, or do you think that was totally different? I'm not sure, because I think... Isn't there, uh, like, something in your body that's referred to as a tensor or, or something? I don't remember. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know where it came from. Who knows? I mentioned your merch, which is where I want to take this conversation next. You have kind of, you're YouTube famous. And I wouldn't go that far. but I'm going to go that far. So, yeah, so you started out doing what, like a vlog thing? And that's still what you do? You did, like, a vlog every year for, or every day for how long and... Oh, yeah. So my uh, the first year that I started making videos, I made something like 20, 20 to 30 videos the, whole, the entire year. Uh, and my, my excuse for it was um, I wanted to be able to spend more time making the video so I could make it a good video, which was kind of BS because even if I gave myself more time, I wouldn't have known what to do with it to make a better video. I didn't have the, the editing skills yet. So then one day, like over spring break, I was like, I don't I wanna I wanna get better at this stuff. So I gave myself this this challenge of making a new video every day over spring break. And then that migrated into like the next month or something like that. And then that sort of just became my thing. It was like I would make a new video every day about physics, no matter what. And in the process, I would get better at telling stories. I would get better at editing. I would get better at you know doing all of the technical. I mean, you're familiar with how to how to make a how to make a good video. There's a lot to learn, and I thought uh, getting rid of the the excuse of being a perfectionist, I would end up surpassing that anyways. Like mm -hmm. it, I could now do what I would give myself three weeks to make back when I was only making a video once a month or something like that, I could now make that video in a couple days because th that was the goal, was to get that much more efficient at making videos. It was definitely hard to make them interesting, and a lot of them weren't, but it was just, uh, I guess that was the gimmick, was like, no matter what, you'll have something to watch today. <laughs> so when you first started out, I mean, what was what was your goal? Did you know that it was going to be, you are going to be a, a hit? No. It, it wasn't supposed to, it's not supposed to be as big as even it, it's as it's gotten right now. I mean, you've got videos that have over a million views. I've seen your videos shared elsewhere, like as you know, it, the joke ones kind of have been yeah. shared widely, but I mean, you've got a lot of views on all of them. Um, well, it started out like going back to when I changed from biology to physics when I made that decision, I wanted to know what to expect. Like, what is physics gonna? What is doing a degree in physics going to entail? And um, so I went to YouTube to try to watch vlogs or something mm -hmm. like that. And there weren't too many options out there. There was one guy named Simon Clark who made videos in the UK about what it's like doing a master's at Oxford in physics, and that was still useful because physics. It's not like the laws of physics are different at Oxford, I don't mm -hmm. think. And we just get, they get the secret laws and we get F <laughs> equals MA. Uh, so that that was good, but I was an average student in high school. No way in hell I would have gotten into Oxford, you know. So I thought maybe there would be a market for 
what studying physics for seeing what studying physics is like if you're just an average average person so that's when i like flip on the camera and started going to odu showing off like our society of physics students what we were learning that week and now we're four or five years later awesome how um if at all has that kind of helped in your um in your journey i mean you're connecting with peers i assume yeah it's um I'd say it's kind of split. Like there are some people who think it's the coolest thing and that I always appreciate that. I'm completely awkward when I met with that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's definitely given me opportunities to say, give talks at certain universities that just want to hear, I guess, my take on science communication. Uh, and then there's other, other people who just don't really get it, which is fine. You know, not everything has to be for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh so I'd say it's it's definitely been more helpful than hurt, hurtful. Sweet. And you have, I looked today, when as at the time of shooting this, you have 33.5 million video views. Really? Yeah. Just shy of 33.5 million. That's nuts. That's a pretty good reach. And you had like over 200,000 subscribers. So does that, I mean, what does that tell you? Are there 200,000 people who are interested in in physics at your level? Or are they just peripherally interested in it i mean what is your audience like that's a that's an interesting question i the answer is definitely no not everyone not all of them are people also doing like their phds or something i think uh a a large portion of them are actually high school students i've actually looked at demographics doesn't tell you like the number but i guess it's giving me percentages which is just as good and yeah, a good portion of them are, are high school age students that are were like me and want to see what they can expect. And in a weird way, so I make three kinds of videos. I make the comedic ones that you pointed out. I'll do uh, the vlogs, just showing day to day stuff, mm-hmm. and then I'll do like the really heavier uh, math videos. And I'll get people who will watch one or the other for actually the same reason because I think the people who like some people who watch the comedic ones won't get the joke because it's not like a neutron walks into the bar bartender says no charge <laughs> it's it's like a horse walks into a bar at 99% the speed of light the bartender says why the short face because relativity predicts that moving objects occupy less space in the direction that they're moving so that's like not a common knowledge joke to get, but I'll get comments on those videos saying they didn't get the joke, but they can't wait until they do. And the same thing, it's the same style of comment that comments on the tensor calculus videos saying, I have no idea what these symbols mean, mm-hmm. but one day I will. You know, it's, it's it's in their own way showing them what's next. Interesting. I think. <laughs> hey, fair enough. What does um that kind of give you, I mean, does that give you hope for the future of physics and and science as a whole and and people discovering these potential new laws that we don't know exist yet it's nice that it's gotten uh it's demonstrated that people are interested in this stuff you just have to find you don't it doesn't have to just be bland lectures to get this material you can be a little bit creative with it uh but then things like youtube shorts and tiktok came around that are now, I mean, the good thing about YouTube videos is you can make a video as long as you want. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it was like, cool, here's a place for people who want the long form. Uh, I mean, if you're doing a podcast, you understand the value of being able to have a longer conversation about something. But nowadays, it's it almost seems like it's reverting back. It's evolving just backwards of like now people want the short videos again, mm-hmm. which could be a problem. If people's attention spans are like, if you have to compete with the short videos again, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Do you see yourself dabbling in TikTok at, at all if you need to, or are you sticking to the longer form? I mean, YouTube has shorts as well. Um, I, w- I made one that was just like a joke, like a, a stupid a stupid joke about general relativity. It was like 10 seconds long. Uh but I won't. I don't see myself being on. I, I only use YouTube. I have Facebook for family. Mm-hmm. I don't use Twitter. I don't use TikTok. I don't have Instagram. 
that's just I'm not interested in, in going onto the different platforms. Yeah, good for you, man. It's it's a it is its own uh, black hole. I, I can tell. <laughs> so, what's next for you? And and uh, I mean, after you get your PhD, then what do you do? The since I'm going the research track, the the option or the where it's headed is once you finish a PhD in say physics. Uh, and if you say, I want to be a professional researcher still, usually there are these temporary research positions that are called postdocs that can last anywhere from like one to three years each. And it's not uncommon for you to have to do two or three of them before you can actually get a full-time research position somewhere. So even though I'll graduate with my PhD in you know, nuclear physics, I won't yet be employable for a full-time research position until I do those. Once that's done, then I can start applying to, say, universities or national labs to be taken on as a full-time researcher. But that's that's the end goal. And those things are funded by the government? Because you said they can't, they're not privatized? It can either, yeah. So you'll have to apply for grants, like uh, grant proposals, and those may be uh, funded by, like, the National Science Foundation, the Department of Energy... DOD, whichever, but yeah, it's, it's never like this paper was sponsored by, you know, uh, the Walmart. Like it's, <laughs> it's not, it's not like that. <laughs> Interesting, man. Well, Hey, thank you for, uh, stopping by. I definitely learned a lot. I'll have to sleep on it and see if I, I hope I, I know I rambled. Talk. It's, there's certain things of like, when you're asked a question, you don't know how you want to answer it yet. So sorry if, uh, you did Some good, of the explanation was just me rambling. No, you did a great job. You did a great job. Thanks again. Awesome. Well, keep up this podcast. This is this is such a good idea, and I'm, I'm loving what you're doing so far with it. Well, I appreciate it. Maybe one day I'll, I'll be half as good as you on YouTube. <laughs> we'll see.